I was driven by fear and rage. I was so afraid that I would never achieve anything again that it motivated me enough to write a book. And I was so furious with how unbelievably irrational our world is when it comes to parenting and work and how we have not yet come up with a solution for families to work and to have children. In late 2022, Edel Coffey's debut novel, Breaking Point, won an Unpost Crime Fiction Book of the Year award, adding best-selling prize winner to other elements in her CV. Journalist, magazine editor, radio presenter, producer, researcher and reporter, weekly columnist and mother. Edel, you're very welcome to the Insights Podcast. And the good news for people who enjoyed your first book, Breaking Point, is that you have another one coming out in the spring. We'll talk about that one a little later. When we worked together on Today's Award years and years back, I was very happy to have you as a colleague. You were brilliant at your job. You got on very well with your colleagues. And what I could discern, you had a busy social life. What more could you want? And then you up sticks and left us. <laughs> and so many things have happened to you since then. I, I hesitate to ask, where did it all go wrong? Nobody was more shocked than I was, Sean, to be leaving E and to be leaving my beloved home of Dublin to move to Galway. You know, Dubliners, we don't don't like to leave the county, Sean. We don't even like to leave the city limits, really. And that's kind of very much how I felt. I was born and raised in Ballybrack. I lived there my entire childhood uh, until I went to college and started to work. And then I moved into the city and lived in the environs for up until that point when I was 37 and I had my first child. We didn't know it at the time, but the beginnings of a new life and a move to the west of Ireland began not long after a famous trip to London when we went over to cover President Higgins' state visit to the UK. Yeah, that's so right. And I was, you know, you worked us hard, Sean. I was in a shambles that week. <laughs> I We came back from, from that trip to London and I had a lot on because I was uh, the books editor at The Independent at the time as well. So I was doing some work for them and I was also doing some work at the Courch Festival in Galway so I had to take a train down to Galway and by the time I got there this was the Friday night I was so unbelievably exhausted and I was wearing like a little pencil skirt and high heel boots and looked very professional and by the time I got off the train I just thought these have to come off <laughs> and I just stopped off in the Air Square shopping centre I bought the most ridiculous horrendous outfit of a pair of flat espadrilles and a kind of jumper that looked something like a pyjama top and a pair of jeans. And I changed, I had a shower, I left my hair completely natural because I was so tired, I couldn't do it. And nobody really knows this apart from my husband, but my natural hair, it's its just, it's, it's wild, Sean, it's wild. It can't be, it can't be tamed. Anyway, off I went to meet my friends. I was amongst friends, so I thought this is fine, you know. And those friends, we were supposed to go to a poetry reading and they said, we're actually going to blow it off. And I said, thanks be to God, yes. And they said, we're going to go for dinner. Would you like to join us? We're meeting a friend of ours. I said, yes. So we went to this beautiful little restaurant called Il Vicolo uh, in Galway. And I met this man who seemed very nice. And I was just having the time of my life eating handmade gnocchi and robbing some of his plate and my friend's plate. And that was that. And um, then he asked me for my number. And I thought, oh, Interesting. So I was kind of hesitant. I thought, well, you know, I had come out of a relationship recently and it was a long term relationship. And I had kind of come to terms with the fact that I was not going to get married and I was not going to have children. Because when you 
end a relationship at that age in your life. You know, I was 36. I think as a woman, you kind of think, well, you know, if it takes me a year to meet someone new and a year to get to know them and maybe a year to get married and then maybe another year to get pregnant, by that time I'll be 40 or 41. So what are the chances? The chances are very small. So I had resigned myself. And then this man comes along offering or asking for my number. And I thought, oh, OK, maybe. So I gave it to him and I have never regretted giving it to him because that was the beginning of what is a great love story, in my opinion. And before you knew it, as it were, certainly before we knew it, you became the mother <laughs> of three children and then a fourth came along. So take us through that. Yeah, so my husband is a widower. So he has uh, two little boys. At the time, they were just three and four um, or going on three and four. And now they are 12 and 13. So um, within a year, we had our daughter, Edith, and I moved to Galway after she was born. I had her in Dublin here. I was working up until she was born. And then we went, he came up and picked me up from the rotunda and off we went to Galway, which was, you know, quite the adventure. <laughs> I was immediately then a mother of three kids and also completely unqualified to be so <laughs> because, you know, I had no experience. And also when you have a child sort of later in life, and I'm, I'm calling it that without wanting to offend anyone, you know, but we are technically termed as geriatric mothers when we're in our late 30s having babies, which is ridiculous, but it is the case. You know, you, you've lived like a 20 year adulthood almost, you know, and you, you've gotten used to being completely selfish, really, and completely independent and not in, having to think about other people to any huge extent, like to the extent that you need to when you're a parent. So it was a big culture shock. How did you go about managing a newborn and then two slightly older siblings? It was it was like it was very challenging, but the boys were very good is what I would say. They were really good little boys. And Edith was like a blessed baby. So I was very lucky, but I still and, and I didn't have any of those awful things. Like I didn't have postnatal depression. I didn't have any of those, you know, extra contributing difficulties. It was difficult. And there were days where I felt like every minute was an hour, of course. Yeah. And obviously, instead of having your, your days or your life dominated by writers and deadlines and broadcasting, a whole new different set of uh, priorities emerged. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that was challenging, too, because while I was very like and I will be eternally grateful for the fact that I get to be a mother, and got to be a mother when I thought I never would be. It was also very challenging because I had gone from a world where I was constantly intellectually stimulated every day. I felt like, you know, working in a newsroom, you're in the thick of things, you hear everything first, you feel like you're really at the centre of things. And not only was I taken out of that environment, but I was taken completely out of my own home environment and I was in a new city and I had no network there and I didn't know anyone. So... It was quite difficult in that sense. You know, I felt suddenly that I had no purpose, even though, of course, I had the purpose of being a mother. But, you know, I think a lot of women struggle with that, you know. Yeah. And, and, and Edel, you've, you've written about this. Uh, it's one of the themes of your first book, uh, Breaking Point, but also you've done columns about it. The shock of being dismissed as just a mother. Yes, I was furious about that, Sean, <laughs> because, you know, I had this sense of myself as, you know, well, I had a, a great friendship group and I had a great career. And when I moved away and became a mother, you know, because those things coincided, they were forever sort of connected and linked in my brain, even if they may not have been. And that may have been my experience had I stayed in Dublin anyway. But yes, I, you know, when I wasn't working and I was just a mother and just minding children, which anyone will tell you is the most challenging job of your life. 
I, I did notice that, you know, if you'd go to a dinner party or you'd be at, say, a work function, people would ask you, what do you do? And if you told the truth and said, um, oh, well, I'm, I'm a mother, they'd lose interest rapidly, if not instantly, and move on to the next person and find out if they were more interesting than you. So there was this sense of a dismissal that you couldn't be interesting or you couldn't have anything interesting to say or anything entertaining to say or even intellectual to say because... You spent all day minding children. And, you know, I could have lied and said, well, you know, I'm a journalist or I'm a writer. And you can be guaranteed that when you say that, the response is different. So just to take a passage where, you know, this theme is dealt with in Breaking Point, uh, a journalist is talking about having interviewed somebody who was mocked as a stay-at-home mom, but she really wanted to be a stay-at-home mom herself. So why didn't she be one? Don't you just get it? She didn't do it because she then would be just a mom. And that's clearly the worst thing you can be in this country, in this case, the US. She wanted to stay home with her kids, but she was afraid her friends would dump her because they would think she was boring or wasn't like them anymore. And you know what, Sean, that is a story that's taken directly from, it was from a woman who had emailed into the Ryan Tuberty show years ago, obviously before I wrote this book, but I was writing the book at the time and I remember hearing this woman, she wrote in a letter, she said her maternity leave was coming to an end and she was devastated that she was going to go back to work. And she said she didn't need to go back to work financially and she had the option of staying with her child, which was what she really, really, really wanted to do. However, she was going to go back to work because she felt that if she didn't, her friends would think she was boring, they'd think she had nothing to say for herself. And it was an anonymous email and I, it struck me so hard because I just remember thinking, we are our worst enemies here. What have we done to ourselves? We can't stay at home with our kids because we're judged for being boring and we can't go to work because we're judged for being bad mothers. So when you came then to set about writing your first novel, were you driven partly by the desire to fit in or was it partly because you had this ambition to be a novelist? How did you go about dealing with that? I was driven by fear and rage. I was so afraid that I would never achieve anything again that it motivated me enough to write a book. And I was so furious with how unbelievably irrational our world is when it comes to parenting and work and how we have not yet come up with a solution for families to work and to have children. Like, for example, I know this sounds radical and revolutionary, but perhaps for the first five years of a child's life, you know, we figure out something so that a a mother or a father or whoever the parent is does not have to work. Or we change the system so we've got excellent childcare. Childcare is falling apart, it's in a shambles. So I was really furious about that expectation that you would just carry on working full time and doing everything you previously did and looking good and smiling and getting your figure back and looking after these babies and not letting a single ball drop. I was in a rage and that was the thing that really motivated the book. But of course, there are only 24 hours in any person's day. If you're lucky, you'll sleep. I was awake for all of them, Sean. (laughs) You will sleep for maybe six or eight of them. But you latched on to a famous line from, was that I think, Voltaire, the uh, perfection is the enemy of the good. And that's how you, if you like, kickstarted yourself as a novelist. Yeah, I did. Because you know what? I had this assumption that I would always write a novel and it was because I really wanted to. But I actually had no discipline about it. And I also had this idea that, you know, 
it had to be perfect. And then I hit 40 and I realised that all these people, they were 10 years younger than me and they were publishing books. They were on to their third book. And I thought, hang on a second, you're sitting here waiting for the perfect moment and it is never going to come. So you better, you know, get on with it. And so that was actually really difficult because and I'm not saying that I have really high standards or that I am perfect. That's not what perfectionism is. It's this idea of not doing anything. It's paralysis if it can't be as good as you would like it to be. But actually, that completely stifles achievement and production. So I, I had this New Year's resolution that I was going to go for achievement and progress over perfection. So I just started writing and I just started, I just thought, you know, there's this idea that if you have something, you can then work on it and you can make it better. But if you don't have anything, yes, you have the possibility of being a genius and being perfect. But you know, you don't have anything. So two weeks in the Tyrone Guthrie Centre to <laughs> contemplate and sit looking if at only. your... That was never going to happen. So where and how did you actually set about writing? Well, the key change came when my youngest daughter, um, in the meantime, I've had a second daughter. Um, so the key change came when she went to um, Montessori. So that's the Etchy scheme, which is three hours every morning um, for free, paid for the, by the government. So when she started that, I had these three blissful hours uh, which felt like two minutes. But I thought, OK, in this time I can get all the laundry done, I can clean the house, I can put all these things away or I can sit in this absolute untidy mess and write and I can do all the cleaning when the children are there because, you know, housework does bear interruption. Writing a book doesn't really bear 100 interruptions in an hour, you know. So I just thought, OK, I'm going to use this time to do the solitude, the writing, the thing that I need concentration for. And then when the children are home, you know, they can happily play around me while I do all those chores that actually don't really require my brain as much. The story of Breaking Point is about a highly successful paediatrician who leaves her child and forgets that she's left her child in her car. The child dies. And you were writing about this at a time when your own child was the same age. I mean, I'm just wondering how you interwove your own fears, your own thoughts, your own priorities with developing that storyline. Yeah, the hardest part of the book to write, obviously, was um, the death of the child and the the sort of mourning of the child by Susanna. Um, particularly when you have children of your own, you know, that's when I was writing this book, this was my greatest fear. I was completely sleep deprived. I had four children under six. I was constantly doing stupid things like, you know, you feel like you've got half a brain. You're functioning on just the bare minimum. And I was constantly worried that I was going to do something silly with one of the kids, like that I was going to mess up. You know, I told the story a million times, but I drove off one day and left the buggy on the side of the road. But the children were in the car, thankfully, but this man behind me was beeping like crazy and he said, you know, is that your buggy? I said, oh God, yes it is. But I'd just done my sequence of tasks in a different order that day so I forgot to put the buggy in. Um, you know, so you're you're running on empty the whole time and when I, when I started writing that particular story about the baby being left in the car, there's so many uh, examples of that happening, particularly in hotter countries like the United States and Australia and even in the UK. And obviously there was... D there's a name for it, actually. It's called Forgotten Baby Forgotten Syndrome. Forgotten Baby Syndrome, because it's usually there's a sequence of um, events that usually happens and they uh, that all the people that this has happened to have in common. So it happens to 
every single demographic, every single, you know, ABC, whether you're educated, whether you're not, whether you have a job, whether you don't, whether you come from a rich or poor background, it happens to everybody across the board. And the fact is, it's just simple brain systems. Usually what happens is there's been a sleepless night beforehand. Then on the morning, um, there's usually a change of um, schedule. So we run on autopilot so much, a change of schedule, we, we slip straight back into our autopilot and we don't remember that we actually need to do something different that morning. Then there's usually an interruption. So this is where smartphones come in. Somebody calls and says, actually, can you come here first instead of going to where you were about to go to? And there's this, I think there was a there was a scientist who described it. It was kind of described as a Swiss cheese um, protection system that's in place in our brain. And on days like this where a tragedy happens, what happens is the, the holes in the Swiss cheese line up and it falls through the holes all the way through. So usually something will stop. The baby will wake up in the car and cry. But because the baby has been awake all night, the baby is sleeping in the car and is silent. So the parent gets out of the car and forgets the baby's there. But so many people contacted me, Sean, about, um, about their own experiences. Irish people, they got in touch with me on Instagram saying this happened to me. But thankfully, the baby didn't die. You know, they went to the shops. They forgot the baby was in the car. They came out and... One woman told me she just burst into tears in the car park and she said strangers came up to her and they were trying to calm her saying, look, your baby's fine. He's fine. But she says she can never think of that time without feeling just sick to her stomach. The other main character uh, in the book is the reporter, Adelaide, uh, works for CNN, having previously been in the, the New York Times and so forth. But And then she had her own personal story about the loss of a baby and then the suicide of the baby's dad, her, her husband. You must, I presume, have drawn on your own experience as a journalist, as a reporter, writer, uh, in, in framing that character. I did, yeah. And like, I love Adelaide. I think Adelaide's a little bit of wish fulfilment for me. She's the kind of journalist I, I wish I was myself, where actually I, I'm not that kind of journalist. I, I did news journalism for the first year of my career and I was so scared of even making phone calls to people. I just I wasn't cut out for the, the news journalism. But I loved writing those scenes in the newsrooms because um, to me, I would just always love newsrooms. I, you know, I came up in newsrooms. They're so busy. There's a lot of shouting. It's very politically incorrect. You get the head torn off if you do something wrong. But there's something so addictive about it. And maybe it's just the stress that's addictive. Yeah, I don't know. You had her do one thing which was very questionable and very unethical, which was dress up <laughs> as a cleaning lady with a mop and all the rest of it as a way of meeting Susanna, the, the high-powered pediatrician who'd, who'd lost her baby as a result of forgotten baby syndrome. That's a kind of that's something that maybe happens from time to time in journalism. I'd say it happens more than from time to time, to be honest, Sean. And I'm not saying it's like something I've done, but I have been sent out and many colleagues of mine have been sent out on a job and told not to come back unless we had a story or the story. And so I think you do what you have to do to get a story, particularly a new story and particularly one that everybody is working on, and particularly one there's competition for. You do what you have to do, whether it's, you know, I'm not talking completely unethical. And obviously, you know, I I have not dressed up as a cleaner and snuck into a hospital and, you know, chased down a, a woman with uh, who's going through the worst time of her life. But, yeah, I did want to make a comment on journalism and, this, you know, how journalism is today. You know, it's a 24 news cycle. It's very, very demanding. And if you don't get the job, 
you know, somebody else will. And that's kind of what Adelaide was up against. And I wanted to show that. Meanwhile, aside from the challenges of dealing with um, motherhood and being mother to three and then four under six, as you say, you had to move to a new part of the country. The whole business of making friends seems to have been a bit of a challenge for you as well. It was. And again, that was another shock because I had had such a, a really strong friendship circle and a really great social group and very busy, you know, very entertaining. We were always out and about. And then I moved to Galway. And obviously, if I had moved to Galway and started a new job in some place, I would have met people. But because I moved to Galway with a newborn, I was indoors and I was recovering from like an emergency C-section as well. So that took quite a while to recover from. So I was kind of housebound for the first while. And then I didn't really know anybody. So I kind of found myself talking to people like I became that person that I used to dread. You know, the person who sits beside you on the bus and starts talking to you. (laughs) That was me. I would kind of talk to anybody because I was so lonely. Or initially when I was in the supermarket and I was getting used to the different pace of life and I was realising that everybody talks to everyone in a smaller town. And when I was initially kind of irritated by that, the queue wasn't moving fast enough. Within a matter of weeks, like that woman on the checkout was my only friend and I used to look forward to talking to her. So I I found it really hard, but I realised that if I wanted to make friends, I was going to have to be proactive about it. And that was really awful as well. Like, joining, What did you do? Oh, I joined groups like I, I went to a writing class and I make great friends. Actually, there's four girls that I'm still friends with from that writing class, which is great. But, you know, it's the kind of thing that you cringe at. You're like, oh, but people should just know how great I am and want to be my friend, Sean. <laughs> but um, nobody knows. So you have to put yourself out there. And I used to go to the library and talk to people. And I like I sound like an awful creep, but actually I was just I was just trying to make friends. And after a while, it just takes time. After and a while, you I being did you, eventually. you joined more than one book club. I joined about, I think I joined about four. I'm still kind of technically in four, but I'm just like a WhatsApp ghost member now of most of them. But yeah, I joined them all because I just, I, again, it was throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what would stick. I was like, I have to, you know, if I, if I put myself out there, if I go into several groups, you know, I will hopefully make friends and meet people. And, you know, people are actually very welcoming and very nice. We don't realise it, but I think we're all in our closed little groups. But if you just put your head up, just look up and look at the person who's walking towards you on your morning walk. And if they're looking at you, maybe smile at them. And some that used to happen to me and it used to make my day because I, I wouldn't have a lot of friends at that time. But it did work out for you. It worked out well for you in the end, didn't it? Uh, well, I absolutely love Galway now and I'm very settled there. We built a house there three years ago and the kids all love school. And everybody says to you that at the time, you know, oh, wait till the kids start school and, you know, you'll make loads of friends. And it is true, actually, you know, you get this big network of people who it, it is that community thing where you've this big network of people um, who just, you know, by proximity, you start to know and then you start to like and then you start to really get to know. I happen to know that you live fairly close to the sea, uh, just a bit further on from Salt Hill and that famous diving, the yellow diving board at Blackrock. Yeah. And you have the kind of healthy look of somebody who's possibly become a serious sea swimmer. Oh my God. I think of the sea, I think it was the journalist Laura Kennedy who described the sea as outer space. And that is how I think of the sea too. It is this hostile, threatening unfriendly place that I never want to be out of my depth in. I didn't learn to swim as a kid, despite the fact that I grew up five minutes away from Kalani Beach 
um, and was constantly in the sea. But I never, like I always had this fear of water. I learned when I was about 27 and I learned, you know, how to do a few lengths of a swimming pool so I could go to Tormelinas and have a nice time. But uh, I've never gotten into the sea. But my children are all brilliant swimmers now and I'm realising I'm going to have to learn to swim. And they all like have this love for the sea. They're like, let's go off the diving towers. I'm like, no. So I, I think I'm going to have to knuckle down now, Sean. Because there's nowhere the better I would have su- suggested in Galway to meet people no, than you know, on the shores of, of, of Galway yeah. Bay there at Black Rock. Yeah, there is, there's like, there's amazing groups there and I know that but obviously I wasn't that lonely, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Something else that happened to you uh, not long after moving west, uh, your mother died. Yes, yeah. And actually, that that was an extraordinary time, really, when I look back on it now, because that was March 2020. She died the 31st of March 2020. We moved into our new house on, I think it was the 19th of March. And lockdown happened, I think, probably like the 28th or the 29th. It was the first lockdown. So within the space of one month, we had these huge momentous changes. And um, she had Alzheimer's. She had early onset Alzheimer's. She was very young when she was diagnosed. She was only 58 and she died when she was 68. And it was a terrible time for someone to die because we hadn't figured out the COVID funerals yet. So there were 10 people allowed in the church. And we were actually lucky that we got that because at the time we were being told that people who had died with COVID were not even getting funerals. They were just being sent straight to the crematorium. So we did have a funeral and I did really feel the benefit of that funeral um, because that's when you realise how important ritual is. And even after the funeral, it was so weird. We were all so compliant. And I look back now and I think, why did we do that? I dropped my father home to his house and I left him there on his own. And I drove to Galway and my brother was in his house up the road. And now, of course, post vaccines, post the world going back to normal, I think, how stupid were we? We should have sat in that house together and mourned her together. But at the time, you know, we were terrified of doing the wrong thing and of, you know, putting people in danger, which was a huge thing at the time. So so we didn't. Yeah. And in addition to the ritual or aside from the ritual, you have just the support that just yeah. envelops you collectively, that the, the neighbourhood, your friends, your colleagues, they mm. just surround you with love and care and apple tarts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, there was probably none of that. I'm, I'm sure my dad has amazing neighbours, so I'm sure there, there probably was stuff like that. But but yeah, interestingly, that, that thing that happens at a funeral or at a wake uh, where people tell their stories of the person, that happened online, actually, which was really nice because I got all these messages from my cousins. My mother was from a huge family. There were 12 kids in the family. And so all my cousins sent me all these messages of all their memories of her, stories I had never heard. So, you know, we find a way, I suppose, to support each other and to to mourn our people, even when we're in that situation. So, uh, so yeah, that was a funny time. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a terrible disease. I think anybody who's been through it knows it's like I consider it the worst illness you could possibly get. Alzheimer's. Yeah, I just think it just robs the person. It robs the person completely. At, at, at some stage, did she stop knowing you? She did, like, she, she completely did. But she always knew I was um, somebody familiar. She didn't know I was her daughter. She didn't know she was married. She didn't know she had children. But she always knew I was a, I think she thought I was a friendly person. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a terrible disease. You you obviously would have missed or would have appreciated had she been in the whole of her health when you started to have your, your children. Yeah. Just 
you know, knocking around ideas or looking for reassurance, oh my God. getting and advice. I, I, I still miss her in in that sense, in that context. And I suppose that's quite a, s- a selfish context to miss her in. But, you know, when I had my children, the, the time before that, my mother was sick and um, I used to go and see her and I used to help out on a Friday. I used to run out of RTE on a Friday early to go um, look after my mum. But um, I, I think I had a very pragmatic approach at that time and I, I don't remember being so sad about it but the minute I had my children I felt like it had happened again I felt like I felt like I just found out she had Alzheimer's or something like that it was a huge hole in my life because I knew that how much I needed her mm. and she wasn't there and actually my auntie stepped in at that time they're so good like she had five sisters and they were all sending their support and texting me and kind of keeping in touch with me very much which they were aware because their mother died young as well. So they were aware that I didn't have my mother in the way that they didn't. Proxy parents, I think you call them in I some mean, like, Look at that for community. I'm thinking of that story uh, recently in, in the newspaper about Irish people, one in five, saying they're so lonely. And, you know, family's so important and we're not all so lucky to have that proxy parenting. But yeah, we really need to look at our communities, don't we? And ways to, to get back in connecting with each other and helping each other. It sounds like you came from a very stable kind of family home. I mean, what were you like growing up? Oh God, I was probably a nightmare, I'd say, John. But like, I I think growing up, so I was the youngest of two. Uh, I have a brother who's three years older than me. My mother was a stay-at-home mother and my father was a plumber. And so we had a very sort of typical uh, working class life. Uh, The school was down the end of the road, five minutes walk, like very safe, very secure, very predictable. We did the same thing every Saturday. You know, it was a lovely, it was a lovely upbringing, really. Um, As a child, I think like we had one television and that television was completely dominated by football or Westerns. So I think I became a reader out of just boredom. I loved music and I loved books and that's all I did. And, you know, like the average child, I just played with my friends on the street outside. But but yeah, I got really into books and I wrote very early as well. I was always writing. I always had notebooks, which was probably quite a luxury. But um, And I'd write mad diaries and I think I was very dramatic actually, Sean, because nothing was happening in my life, but I was writing very deep diaries. So not surprising that maybe you felt the call of journalism, but I was interested in the fact that rather than go to Trinity and conveniently use the dart close to home and close to the the (laughs) university or indeed UCD, you went right across the city all the way to DCU to to do journalism. Do you know, I look back and I just think I wish I'd had like a little bit of advice. And I think this is really important for working class kids. I think it's very different now, maybe, because if I was a kid now, if I was 18 now, I could just Google, you know, advice. But at the time, my parents hadn't been to college. Like, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And they were very much of the opinion, like, well, what do you enjoy? What are you good at? Uh, Why don't you do something to do with that? And I was like, great. Really, they should have told me to be a lawyer or something. (laughs) But, um, But I was trying to figure out a way that I could write and make a living. And so I thought journalism was a way because I really did want to do English in Trinity and I actually got the points to do English in Trinity, but I hadn't put it on the list because I thought I'll never get the points to do English in Trinity. And what am I going to do with an English degree? Because 
who's going to hire a person with an English degree? So I was always very pragmatic in that way because it wasn't like I could have an English degree and then take a few years off. It was like, you have to get a job and you have to work. So so I thought journalism was the way. And I did that four-year degree. And it's just as well I was commuting from Ballybrack to DCU because I did all of my study and all of my homework on the bus. And all my free time was spent working in the centre on Marine Road in Dunleary, which I loved. It was a great job talking to people all day long again. <laughs> and then professionally, your starting point was the Sunday the Tribune. Sunday Tribune, yeah. I applied for everybody in that DCU degree got a placement, which was a brilliant uh, aspect of that degree. So I applied to work in the Sunday Tribune because I thought weekly deadlines would be better for a novice journalist. And also somebody had told me that if I applied for a internship in a place that was slightly understaffed, I would have a better chance of getting some experience. And I did. So, you know, they were they were willing to let you work. They'd send you out on jobs. They'd send you out on interviews. I remember my very first interview was Ruby Wax. And uh, I turned up wearing a suit and holding a briefcase because I thought that's what you do. And this wonderful journalist, uh, Suzanne Power was her name, came out and she looked like this beautiful bohemian. She had blonde flowing hair. She had a, a cool denim skirt and a T-shirt. And I just thought, oh, no, I've done this all wrong. And you just, you know, that first year of journalism was just so many lessons over and over again. Was Vincent Brown still there at that stage? No, it was Matt Cooper. So Matt was the boss and, and he was a great boss, actually, I have to say. He was, you know, everybody was so young when I think back, you know, because I was like, what, 21 or 22, I thought everybody was at least you know, 100 years old. But actually, he must have been in his 30s at the time. Mm. And people like Lise Hand were there, Mick Clifford, Harry McGee. It was a great place to work. You know, I was working with great journalists and they were always very, very generous. Yeah. Um, so that was what, about a four year, four year stint there? Six years. And then I did like, I don't know why I did this, but I just, you know, sometimes... I'm, I'm managing to curb this impulse of mine. Well, I think I am. But it's like once I get bored somewhere, I'm just like, OK, just shake it up. And I left a full time job in a wonderful newspaper um, just to try and find some new experiences and new adventures. So I went freelancing and then I got a job in Phantom Radio, um, which was a pirate radio station at the time. So I was presenting and producing a job there. And then a job was coming up in the independent features executive and I knew the Indo was a great place to work in terms of like uh, remuneration and uh, contracts that they had. And I really wanted to get some security at that point. I think that was probably 2008. So I was turning 30 that year. So I got that job. But I ended up only staying three years there because it was it was a really tough environment and it was really macho. And at that point, after those three years, I went to Orti and that's where my Orti yeah, started. There were there were great times. I mean, sometimes, you know, old soldiers get together and uh, reminisce about the good times and the great times and all the rest of it. But I was talking to Ivan Yates recently about this, about, you know, if you wanted, what would you say to a youngster who wants to be in journalism? And Ivan, Ivan said, look, you'll, have, you'll, have, you've, you'll probably have great fun, but bear in mind these two things. You're going to drive a rubbish car and you're going to live in a bad area. I mean, it is nothing like the kind of career path with opportunities and security that was there, uh, that were there maybe 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, and there was like, there was huge money in it at one point, you know, and when I got the job with The Independent, it was really well paid and the contract was until I was 64, if you can believe that. Um, and, and yeah, it was a really, you could live a kind of, a middle class life and probably support a family on the kind of wages you're being paid. 
But obviously online changed everything and um, there are very, very few full-time positions in journalism nowadays. So maybe it's as well for people like you that you do have the ability and the, the drive to diversify uh, to, be and a, pivot. To, to be a novelist. <laughs> Tell me about your next book. Oh it's my, already done, isn't it? It's written. It's done and I'm just I'm proofing it at the moment. Actually, the proofs are due back um, in a couple of weeks. So the idea I had, I had wanted to write about being a second wife. So as I mentioned, my husband's a widower and um, I wanted to write about that slightly strange experience of being a second wife, you know, because if somebody's partner has died, you know, they haven't broken up. There was no kind of bad ending to a relationship. It wasn't like they stopped loving them. So you're in... Uh, in an unusual position, I think. Um, so I wanted to write about that. But then there was this pesky novel, Sean, called Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, which is kind of the perfect novel about the second wife. So I thought, well, I can't really write anything about being a second wife because that's just brilliant and I don't have anything original to say about it. And then I had this other idea for uh, what I thought was another novel, which was about my mother and you know, when she was sick with Alzheimer's, I used to think, I used to kind of daydream, like, wouldn't it be amazing if she just got better. Like, what would we do? Uh, how nice would it be? You know, what would our life be like? What's the first thing? Will we go on a holiday? You know, all these ridiculous things that you think. And I think that was part of the grieving process, actually. But but then I used to think, like, what when, when my mom died, my dad has met a new partner. And then I thought, like, you know, what if she had gotten better? You know, what would happen to my dad's partner? Would she get the heave-ho? You know, does my mom come back into the picture? What happens? And then I thought, OK, what if I put these two ideas for two separate novels together and I've got a man whose wife is dying and he meets someone new. They fall in love. They move very quickly. They move in together. They have children or they, they are expecting a baby. The wife is expected to die. However, modern medicine, clinical trials, she gets better and she comes home. And the whole point of this book then is, you know, whose life is it? Who is the other woman in this situation who gets to stay who should leave if anybody sounds like an absolutely fascinating read oh it is what's John. it called what's it called <laughs> it's called in her place and it's at the very end of march in 2024 and how much support um, do you get from your editor i mean in, in the list of acknowledgments in your first book i mean there's a lot of people editorially <laughs> uh, who are thanked I mean, yeah. where does the advice and where do the, the little changes uh, come from? And, you know, are you somebody who's open to oh, those yeah. kind of little, you know, nuances that maybe, you know, they say, oh, well, look, have you tried this? Or yeah. what about No, that? I love the editing process. And I again, I thank my journalism career for that because I've no sensitivity about editing. I just, I love when they come back with suggestions. I feel like here is somebody who's trying to make you better. And I'm so grateful for that. There's a lot of help. Like, you know, I was really surprised actually on the first time. I thought this is amazing actually like these people all with different opinions and different mindsets and attitudes are reading your book and they're seeing different things they're improving you at every level and I kind of compare it to what I imagine a good therapist is they don't tell you what to do at all they ask questions so they ask very relevant questions if something is wrong or if something's clashing or not working they'll ask a question like why is she doing this or how would the reader feel about this? You know, is this psychologically accurate for this character to do? And you you have to answer the question, you know, yourself. And most of the time they're correct, you know. Ultimately, was it, was it an easier or a more manageable process doing the second one than the first? 
given mm. that you had proved to yourself you could, forget about perfection, achievement is what you're aiming for. No, it wasn't. It wasn't easier, actually. I think breaking point was easier because you have all that. You don't have any prior knowledge. You're just writing it in the hope that something will happen. Whereas the second book, it is more difficult because you're writing it. And also a breaking point. Breaking point was number one. It won a prize. It sold really well. So now I'm in the position of going, oh, God, like, how am I going to do that again? And, you know, I, I can't expect to do that again. But there was that pressure in my head of like, and then that idea of, oh, should I write something similar to Breaking Point? Because so many people liked it and maybe they'd like something similar. And But also, how can you write something similar, you know? So I found the second book much tougher, but I learned way more from the second book now. I feel you, like I feel think, like I finally know how to write a book, Sean. Do you, do you, think, do you think it's a better book? I have gonna, to say yes. <laughs> of course, it's a better book. Um, it's a it's a different book, but it there are similar experiences in it. I would say my editor says he calls my fiction dilemma fiction because he says there's always a dilemma that people can sort of relate to, and there's definitely definitely a dilemma here. And there's there's a lot of big themes about status, about being single, and about being married, and about being a mother, and about being not a mother. And I really wanted to focus on that because I lived a lot of my life without being a mother and without being married. And I had also reached the point at which people start to question why you're not married and why you don't have children. And I really noticed those very subtle judgments that exist. And I wanted to talk about that in this book too. And meanwhile, I mean, you're a weekly column in the Irish Examiner magazine on a Saturday. Um, just everyday stuff. And then you write about as well occasionally in the Irish Times. Yeah, I like to write in the columns. I like to write about things that I hope connect with people as you know or that people can recognize in their own lives like you know I'll write about grief a lot actually I'll write about you know body image aging because I'm 45 now and I am aging and my my body's changing my face is changing and I noticed that. Yeah, how but you seem to be changes. quite relaxed about it. In other words, I was at a birthday party recently of an eight-year-old and I said, Natalie, what's the best age to be? And she said, oh, well, I, I'm eight. I said, you're absolutely right. So the right. best age to be at is the age you are at. She's so right. That's like that Winnie the Pooh quote, isn't it? What day is it? It's today. Today is my favourite day. I love that quote so much. But yeah, I think I'm relaxed about ageing because, you know, because of what might happen to my mother, obviously. And I just think, I'm goddamn lucky to be here. I've got four children. I want to be with them as long as I can. And I really hope I live for a very long time. But also I feel like I've been so lucky in my life. I, I'm very content. So I think that things like ageing, I feel like it doesn't really matter because I feel like I have a beautiful husband who is so kind to me and appears to love me so much and I love him. And we've got four beautiful children and we are so lucky. So why would I complain about getting older you know getting older is the bonus now I don't want to sound like oh I'm getting older I'm so blessed but I I do have days where I'm like oh look at my face how can I have so many lines or I've you know I'm still carrying around a stone since Covid and I don't know how to get rid of it I just love the food so much Sean but and those things do bother me but at the same time I try to have the perspective and they don't bother me enough, obviously, to yeah, lose the You're stone. less bothered by makeup, for instance, feeling the need to be slathering it on or whatever. No. And I think that all came from COVID as well. We all just like stopped doing those things. And then I remember like putting on a full face of makeup and thinking, I look insane. I just looked 
I'd gotten used to my face without makeup that I just thought I looked crazy with all that makeup on. So now I just tend to wear less. And also I think it doesn't work as well as you get older, your skin ages, you know. So now I just try to do the little bit of enhancements, uh, you know, get some facials and try to keep the skin good. So... Idel, it's been an absolute joy, a privilege and a pleasure to have had this conversation. Thank you so much indeed and the very best wishes and best of luck in the rest of your career, be it writing columns or novels and raising children and ultimately maybe some grandchildren. (laughs) I hope so, Sean. Thank you so much. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.